Welcome to the extraordinary world of James Nixon, a much-travelled Australian, a commercial pilot, a photographer and an international journalist based in Dubai. Clive James described the moment when, as a small boy, he visited his friend and made the mortal mistake of entering his front garden without checking if the family dog, a known psychopath called Bluey, had been chained up. He hadn't. James recalled, He came out of the ground, as if on a lift. The buildings are like that in Dubai. First come the cranes, thousands of them, like Triffids. About 20% of the world's cranes are split between Beijing and here, spending weeks waving back and forth, then each suddenly appearing to pull a skyscraper out of the sand. In a while, their job is done. Overnight, they disassemble themselves, seemingly move a few metres, reassemble themselves and start again. Most baby boomer Australians know little about the Middle East. It's not their fault. Their Anzac grandfathers and fathers preferred not to talk about their experience in the First and Second World Wars. But a look at the use of gum trees shows we've been here before. At school we were taught about England, the USA, and precious little about our own country, except that all our explorers died horrible lonely deaths either going for a leak in the Antarctic or starving in central Australia with swollen tongues and a sunburn we could barely imagine. It says something about our forefathers, though, that whilst perched on Sydney Harbour or in the cool shade beside the Yarra, you'd grab a few hundred guys, some tons of salt and sugar, a few huge wooden boats and proceed to the outback to find a place to go fishing. When it came to the Middle East, we learnt absolutely nothing, except from Sunday school sitting itchy in our Sunday best, where we heard about smoting and begatting, while Mum and Dad snuck home for a little begatting of their own, safe in the knowledge where the Littleys were. We learnt that you could go fishing in the Middle East. It was hot and sandy, because everyone got around in bare feet, so hot that the men wore towels on their heads, like we did, on the way back home from the swimming pool. We learnt that it was violent, not unexpectedly, really, considering the men wore dresses. This violence, studied in the Bible, was reinforced during the mass pilgrimage to London, when the Qantas jet stopped in the middle of the night for fuel but not drinking water, on a three-kilometre concrete strip in Bahrain, to stand in buses in the steamy night air, or, if you were lucky, crammed into the shed of an airport terminal whilst the plane was serviced before returning into the sky. Keeping you from straying into the godforsaken Middle East was a skinny young man in an ill-fitting uniform, clearly in need of deodorant and a shave, holding a huge black steel machine gun. Sweating as the Qantas jet was coaxed back into the air, it was an image that would define our view of the region, reinforced by the nightly news which only focused on skirmishes. And it was a pretty apt description. Violent. Not so much as the, the people, but the land itself. This is an area where the worlds collide, both culturally and tectonically. Compared to Australia, where ancient seas and endless winds have worn down our continent so it has lumps rather than mountains, the Middle East looks like two continents have just survived a massive car crash, with steam still issuing from the radiator and the sound of a hubcap spinning to a stop. The Eurasian and European tectonic plates slammed into each other so hard that what was the seafloor is now 16,000 feet up in folds of rock. We know that because the Zagros Mountains, just a few hundred kilometres north of Dubai, in Iran, it's where they found fossils of a two-kilogram sea snail who one day 50 million years ago was taken from the bottom of the ocean to twice the height of Mount Kosciuszko by the violent earth. So the geography is astounding and a byproduct of the massive collision is oil and money. Individual countries have prospered beyond their wildest dreams. 
Take, for example, the tiny island kingdom of Bahrain, less than half the size of Melbourne's suburban sprawl, which was the site of the first big Middle Eastern oil discovery in the 1930s. Fed by underground freshwater springs, it used to be covered in vegetation. Some say it was the original Garden of Eden. It's the first place in the world that they found pearls, and its prosperity was astounding. Like Australia, the entire Middle East is about seaside living. The Arabian Peninsula, which keeps the Red Sea and the Arabian Gulf apart, is only 1,200 kilometres wide, less than the distance from Adelaide to Sydney. The only people who live inland are the Saudis in their capital, Riyadh, equivalent in location and temperature to Alice Springs. Both cities are 2,000 feet above sea level, freeze at night and melt during the day. It's at the bottom of the Gulf where Dubai sits facing northwest, close to the Straits of Hormuz, through which 20% of the world's oil requirements are tankered each day. Unlike Bahrain, Dubai has always been the lonely cousin, who never had much in the way of pearls or oil, just a creek and a nice place for the men of the sea to stop a while, trade pearls and tell stories. Dubai is a trading port, like Cape Town, Singapore, Hong Kong and Shanghai. They've done it for centuries and they plan to do it better than anyone else in the future. The 800-kilometre-long body of water called the Arabian Gulf by those on the left and the Persian Gulf by the Iranians who occupy the right is headed on the left-hand side by Iraq and tiny Kuwait. Further down the left side is Saudi Arabia, the island of Bahrain and the peninsula that is Qatar. The United Arab Emirates, a collection of seven states that assumed its final form in 1972, sits along the bottom of the Gulf, just a fraction larger in area than Tasmania. Oman owns the dislocated tip of land protruding into the Straits of Hormuz, along with its Victoria-sized chunk that contains the stunning rugged mountains around Muscat, facing the Gulf of Oman and the Arabian Sea. The rulers of Dubai since the early 1800s, the Al Maktoum family, have realised that uniforms and machine guns are not the way to attract tourists so vital for their survival. Dubai's dwindling oil reserves attract only 6% of the Emirates' income and are, for example, one-twentieth the size of the reserves held by the adjoining emirate and UAE capital, Abu Dhabi. So whilst the local and US military presence is strong in Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain and Qatar, the UAE appears devoid of uniforms and machine guns. 70% of the police force is plain clothed and invisible to the holidaymakers streaming down from chilly European winters six hours away. The myth of the melting desert heat needs dispelling. Dubai is about the same latitude as Rockhampton and receives four distinct seasons. Winter, during the Australian summer, has overnight lows of about 15 and tops of 22, with a meagre 13 centimetres of rain dumped in January. Spring and autumn are glorious with lows of 17 to tops of 25 and cloudless blue skies. Summer nights are down to about 22 and days topping 35 until the four hot midsummer weeks where the tops of 45 are possible. But 45 in a land of air-conditioned cars and buildings designed around the heat is much easier to deal with than summer in London on the day it reaches 30 and there's not an air-conditioned car, theatre, train or bus in the entire country. Summer in the Middle East is characterised by the vanishing of all expat wives and kids back to their home countries, summer school holidays are long, and the absence of the Arabs who seem to dislike the heat escaping to Europe as anyone who's tried to walk down London's Oxford Street in July will know. The building rush is on in Dubai, as is the rush to build the biggest and best in everything. It seems that every architect with a bright idea has been let loose here. Their premier hotel, the memorable Burj Al Arab, is their current drawcard, along with residential developments dredged from the Gulf waters in the shapes of palm trees, dolphins and a Lambert conformal map of the world. 
to the astounding shopping malls like the Mall of the Emirates with its own ski slope where it's minus 10 inside and where the mid-station cafe sells the best on-piste hot chocolates in the world. And their plans for 40 kilometres of inland creekside waterfront living and the hideously sounding Dubai Land, the theme park that will be larger than the entire Principality of Monaco. Dubai's new international financial centre will be the centre of the universe, being able to trade between the opening hours of both Sydney and New York and everything in between. Also in the centre of the universe will be the new World International Airport, capable of joining every city in the world by one flight. The current Dubai airport has one functioning runway and last year moved 25 million passengers. World International will have six runways, five terminals and move up to 128 million passengers a year, half a million a day. As the first post-9-11 designed airport, it's been designed with security in mind, rather than as an add-on, so there'll be no paperwork transactions. All shoes and handbaggage will be scanned as you move along moving walkways. The mind boggles. And in Dubai, it keeps boggling. The trick to this place is that there are many tax-free zones in which to do business, most around the largest man-made seaport in the world, Jebel Ali. There's Internet City, home of Microsoft and friends, Media City, where you find all the world's TV networks, Knowledge City, full of universities, and so on. It'd be easy to laugh each one off, but as soon as one big company, Reuters, for example, sets up shop, all their competitors rush in just in case it has a chance of working. Next, all the best companies are here, sitting side by side, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then come the sportsmen, seen as cash cows by their high-taxing home governments. Not anymore, they come here to live most likely in free mansions, and their fans follow. Roger Federer is one, and it's rumoured that Michael Schumacher is about to move here as well. The population of 1.5 million has 300,000 locals, with the remainder expatriate or expat workers. India and Pakistan provide most of the outdoor working male labour, while Filipino men and women occupy most of the indoor customer service roles. Their contracts and living conditions have been the subject of much scrutiny leading the rulers to decree that the age of slave labour is over. Now all workers will receive supposedly the best worker conditions in the world, proper contracts, better living conditions, medical and dental care. It seems that whenever a problem arises, it's fixed with all haste and an open checkbook. Take the quality of the water in the Gulf, for example. A friend was privy to the discussion between the ruling sheikh and a leading environmentalist. When asked if he could make Dubai into the world's best example of a pristine environment... He said, yes, but it'll cost a lot of money. The sheikh replied, I didn't mention money. As the number of cars grows at the rate of 20% per year, they've addressed the traffic problem by installing new bridges over the Dubai Creek and building a rail system, all with characteristic haste you'd expect. At the human level, Aussies have taken over the place. The national airline Emirates is swarming with ANSET refugees, and the huge building firms have many specialist Australian engineers. About five years ago... There are about 3,000 Australians in Dubai. That number is now about 25,000 enjoying the gold rush lifestyle in a city which is squeezing up between the sand and the sea, coming out of the ground like Bluey, as if on a lift. Thank you very much, James, for that fascinating insight into the magnetic gold rush now happening in Dubai. And we look forward with much anticipation to our next touchdown with James Nixon. It's bound to be interesting.